Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality Podcast. It's Friday. Sorry, recording a little bit later today. Uh, just had a busy morning, but wanted to get this in because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, looks like it's going to be another uh, hot weekend here. Weather is still hot all around the globe right now. Heat waves, I think, almost hitting like 80% of Americans right now. Heat waves in Europe, all the way into almost Eastern Europe, so it's hot. And... Um, I'm going to get right to it, though. So I want to talk about a lot of things today. I want to talk about the complexities of Clarence Thomas and why his his perspective is kind of because of how he grew up and his experience. I, I just wanted to dive into Clarence Thomas for a little bit. Um, and then I want to talk about Bolsonaro's big lie in Brazil and is COVID here forever. But first, a little good news to start your Friday. Gas prices are staying low. Lower, I guess, is probably the better word. I, I don't want to say they're actually low because, as the New York Times discusses, the average national price this week was 4.49 a gallon, which is down from a peak of 5.01 in June, and the average price of gas is still about a dollar 30 higher than it was a year ago. So again, it's it's better. Like it's all in perspective here, right? As I keep mentioning, I do think winter is coming in Europe, right? And things are going to get much worse over there. Definitely worse over there. But I think we have to keep it into perspective here because I keep telling my Republican friends, don't blame Biden for gas prices and don't listen to the Fox News talking points. Like, like remember, we are actually doing much better than a lot of the West right now in regards to prices. I know it's hard to believe when you see 449 a gallon, but again, this is not a U.S. problem. It's a world problem unless you're India who's buying Russian oil and selling it on the market. <laughs> which is a whole other story. But, you know, for a lot of Western countries right now, prices are high. The U.S. is better off than Europe. And we're just going to have to keep fighting this. And I know that sounds cold, and I, I know it's hard. But, yeah. Um, for example, the, the EU urged member states to reduce their gas use by 15%, which was compared with the five-year average, because basically they just fear that the Russians could be playing with them again and could cut off fuel again, right? Because they had that 10-day shutdown of the, of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They did reopen it, but with less supply. And there's always the fears that Russia's going to play with them and toy with them about that. The Economist also reports that the IMF has warned that such embargoes could cause the economies of European countries that are very reliant on Russian gas, such as the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Slovakia, to shrink by 5%. So fuel is a problem right now. And like I said, when winter comes and people need to heat their homes, it's going to be tough. And also, let's remember that AC is expensive, and a lot of Europe is, is facing a heat wave, a lot like here. So then we have energy prices with that as well. So it's really not a great time for fuel prices, but it's good to see that at least they're dropping a little bit here in the United States. Moving on, another fun piece of news before we get to the less happy stuff. Um, as I'm sure a lot of you know, I like distance running. I've been uh, slowly working towards doing an ultra marathon at some point in the near future, probably once I'm done with grad school, just because uh, I'll have a more, a more stable schedule, have more of a specific times I can really do cross training and all that jazz. But anyways, in, in the running world, something totally I don't usually talk about on here, but the 45th anniversary of the Badwater 135 race wrapped up last week, and I'm just mind blown about this year specifically. So the Badwater, just for people, is 
is a race. It's 135 miles, and it goes from Badwater Basin, which is in Death Valley, California, and it goes to the Whitney Portal, which is at 14,000 feet. I was at the Whitney Portal about a month ago, and, you know, I mean, that climb from from the Alabama hills all the way up to the Whitney Portal is insane. I mean, you just go straight up. So imagine you're doing a 135-mile race, and you're ending with this just giant climb to the portal of Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the continental United States. But this year was really interesting because the winner, um, Yoshiko uh, Ishikawa, sorry, I'm really bad with pronunciation, but he uh, had his second victory at the race, and he ran negative splits to finish the race in 23 hours, 8 minutes, and 20 seconds. He'd set the course record previously in 2019, which with an insane 21 hours and 33 seconds. And so the crazy thing, though, is that not that he even did this race, which sounds painful, but it was 130 degrees in parts of the race. So 135 miles in 130 degree weather. You know, I, I would probably die if I did that right now, just to be honest. Um, so it just takes a physical specimen to be able to do that. Like, I want to run an ultra marathon, but that's not, that one's not particularly on my list because that just... Running in July in Death Valley just sounds like my personal hell, honestly. Either that or being attacked by birds. They're both pretty up there. But anyways, like I said, I want to talk about COVID, Bolsonaro, and do a deep dive into Clarence Thomas and why he's a pretty unique and fascinating person, though I am not a fan of him, and I think he's bad and flawed. But I, I think he's actually a, just a fascinating character. So first, COVID. This new variant of Omicron is quite transmissible. And almost everyone I know has either had it recently or knows someone who has. It kind of just came out of nowhere because, you know, a lot of us are living in kind of either denial or just apathetic to COVID. I know I'm guilty of this. And it kind of seems like about the same time every year we get a wave, <laughs> right? Right towards the uh, kind of middle to end of July. I think it was the same thing last year with uh, whatever the variant was called. I've tried to forget it, but... Even Joe Biden, right, currently has it. Apparently, at least last time I saw, he has mild symptoms. I mean, I, I hope he gets better. It, it is crazy to see what progress we've made with technology since when Trump got, or not, to, uh, with, with scientific and medical expertise with COVID since Trump was president. Because let's remember, Trump was reportedly quite sick. Biden right now does not seem to be quite sick. I heard he has sniffles and he's still working. So that's good to see. But Seeing him get COVID just reminded me of how worrying it is because he's an older guy. Um, he's definitely in that vulnerable category. And it just reminds me of like how fragile all of this is right now. Um, I don't want to stay on that too long, but you know, this, it just kind of reminds me why maybe we don't want someone who's almost 80 to be president. You know, I, I don't want to sound ageist, but it's true. Like, and then, you know, if something were to happen to him, again, Kamala Harris is the backup, and I would not want her to be the, the president of the United States. I'm sorry. But anyways, I, I, I don't want to talk about that. I, I want to talk about the new variant. Uh, China, for example, is seeing another surge. The Economist writes in quotes here, a number of Chinese cities and provinces wrestled with outbreaks of COVID-19 as new infections rose across the country. China's strict COVID controls are struggling to contain Omicron subvariants, which spread fast and are hard to detect. Some 260 million people in 41 cities are under lockdown or subject to other restrictions, according to one estimate. So that's nice, right? I don't know what China is expecting because, like, 
I want to talk about forever COVID in the United States, but boy, I mean, I would not want to be in China because it seems like it's just going to be these forever cycles of lockdown. And <laughs> they're obviously not accomplishing much. Like when it's this, when it's this transmissible, everyone's getting it. Like what's the end goal, guys? You know, what is the end goal? But the Atlantic has an article out today called America is running out of COVID virgins. <laughs> and it just looks at how those who have not had the virus are basically just a sitting duck based on how transmissible this new subvariant is. Something interesting, too, is that B85, which is the newest of the subvariants, seems to be able to reinfect people who were previously sick, even within just a few months. Um, I listened to the Rich Roll pod podcast, Running Podcast. He said he got the new one recently after having COVID a few months ago. I've anecdotally talked to a buddy who said his mom's had COVID twice in the last three weeks. Um, I'm, I'm hearing more and more of this story that people are getting it frequently. And <laughs> it, it's just... Um, it's just kind of worrying because testing also is not working as well with this. It seems to be evading our our vaccine response. And it's also problematic because some of the people who maybe haven't got COVID yet are immunocompromised. And now they might have a higher chance of getting it. So it's not good. And I'm just kind of at the point where I wonder if this is just the forever plague. You know, I feel like the flu is kind of like a flu type of situation, but more of a pain, honestly, because... It just seems like the vaccine can't keep up with new variants. Like we're always behind chasing the last one. Um, people are apathetic. Like I said, our immune response seems to dwindle fast. So reinfections keep happening. The current vaccine, like it seems like they just want to re-up boosters more and more, even though some of these boosters aren't even caught up to date with the newest variants. So it's, it's quite annoying. Our public policies are not keeping up either. You know, I, I think Biden's ability to work with scientists and not be a total asshole is a huge upgrade from Trump. But at the same time, we haven't seen that drastic of changes between the two administrations. So that's also not great. And Catherine Wu has an article from earlier this week. It's called New COVID Vaccines Will Be Ready This Fall. America Won't Be. Always a good title. And it's an interesting article that discusses how our vaccine strategy is shaky at best and right when we're going into a wave, a spike, and the fall, so school season, back to work for some people, all that jazz. And apparently the, the, the Omicron focus vaccines are not going to be ready until, I've seen different numbers, but it looks like with the FDA process and everything, probably not even until October or more likely November, which obviously wouldn't be great if we're seeing the wave now and they're making a vaccine to respond to the wave now in the previous wave. There's also the fear, right, that there could just be a new variant and Omicron and the Omicron-styled vaccine may be too late. Also, the wave could have already passed by then, right? We're in July. And, of course, the, the FDA has just now said they would like a bivalent vaccine, which is basically one that would have the spike of BA4 and BA5 mixed with that of our OG COVID virus. But it's, it's problematic to me that they're talking about it now. Right. It just seems like they're a little behind on this. Maybe I'm crazy, but it feels like they're a little behind. Um, the article also notes in quotes here, the world's third COVID autumn, far from a stable picture of viral control, is starting to resemble a barely better sequel to the uncoordinated messes of 2020 and 2021. The coming rollout may be one of America's most difficult yet, because instead of dealing with this country's vaccination problems, we're playing our failures on loop. It kind of does feel like Groundhog Day when you think about it. It just seems like we're living the same thing over and over again. And 
I am. I understand this is unprecedented. It's a novel virus. Things are changing. But you would think you would just think we'd maybe be prepared, saying like, why don't we start just getting an, an, a, like this new bivalent vaccine right away? You know what I mean? It just seems like our agencies are behind, and are just getting to discussing this rollout for the fall when probably I I heard at first they were talking about this in April. So I don't know what happened, and. These delayed decisions may also cause issues with approving the new vaccine. We know how the FDA can be slow, which is, I guess, good because we are putting it into our bodies. But still, this is why you have these conversations months ago. Apparently, there's also a supply issue to put another nice piece to this puzzle, uh, where even if the vaccine is approved, there's probably most likely not going to be enough. So that's always fun as well. The article notes and quotes, coronavirus funds are still stalled in congressional purgatory and may never make it out. Although the Biden administration has agreed to purchase more than 100 million doses of Pfizer's revamped uh, Omicron vaccine, federal officials remain worried that, as Ashish Jha, the nation's top COVID response coordinator, has said, we're not going to get enough vaccines for every adult who wants one this fall. That's fun, right? That's a, that's a nice little story. So we have a pandemic. Um, our politics don't work. So the money to actually get these secured is being held up in Congress. And we have a wave coming. Lovely. Then there's also the issue, to add more, of um, getting workers to actually be at these facilities, right? Like, if, if people aren't showing up to get the vaccine or there's not enough or states are losing their COVID funding, then they're going to start cutting these clinics. And that's also going to be a problem, especially if you live in a rural area or a marginalized community, low-income area, right? There's, there's going to be some issues with that. So even if we have enough vaccine, you might not be able to get one because there's not people to actually administer it. Or there could be long lines, delays, right? Then we have to remember the last happy part is that a lot of Americans don't even have the booster. So the question then is, will people even get the vaccine or the booster, I guess, if it's available? Because look, like, I think a lot of people were convinced that this vaccine would just stop them from getting COVID. It's been very effective at stopping people from getting very sick. There's no denying that, right? I, I got COVID, I've been vaccinated, and I was able to run one day after testing positive, right? So obviously the vaccine is very effective at keeping you from getting sick. But also people are still getting sick, right? And I think a lot of people are just confused, right? Because the messaging has been flawed on the vaccine and the standards are ever changing. And I, I remember when the vaccine was first available, everyone was racing out to get it because they thought, oh, we get vaccinated and things will be normal for a while. But that hasn't been the case. And it's obviously not the vaccine's fault specifically, but it just seems like people have lost trust in the vaccine and health officials. I know a lot of people in that community personally that got vaccinated and now said, I will never get another one. Um, it's just, it's kind of just a shit show. And it just seems to me like the virus is always going to be one step ahead of us. And due to failed policy, disinformation, apathy, whatever it may be, it's just making this issue worse. And because we're playing catch up, I don't know if we'll ever actually be able to beat this thing, especially because then also you have the developing world or the global south where these new variants keep coming out of. Most people in Africa are not even double vaxxed yet. So it's exhausting, but I just don't really know what the outcome is here other than a somewhat of a forever plague or a forever COVID, right? And that's not to be hyperbolic. I just, I keep reading these articles that kind of say the same thing is that we're not prepared for the next wave. So yeah, on, on that light note, I'll move on. Sorry, I think there was an ambulance in the background. Again, Fridays are noisy, so just 
be patient with me, but I think it's quiet now. So moving on, um, I want to briefly talk about Jair Bolsonaro, Brazilian president. He could be defeated in October's elections, which would be great <laughs> on a side note. But yeah, he's Brazil's right-wing president who liked the authoritarian military dictatorship era in Brazil, kind of a quasi-fascist, nuts, in my opinion, um, problematic, homophobic, violent, COVID denier, anti-vaxxer, pretty much everything you don't want in a leader. But he's actually um, doing a very Trumpian thing, which we predicted would happen. We talked about it on the old podcast. I've talked about it here, is that Trump's big lie tactics will spread. And Bolsonaro is casting doubt on the, re the reliability of the electoral process. He's claiming without evidence that the voting system is vulnerable to fraud. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's Trump's playbook, right? And Bolsonaro, according to The Economist, said that the army should participate in the process to guarantee safe elections. And uh, that's never good. I don't like the army helping do elections. That sounds like a military dictatorship, which again, like I've said, I don't think Bolsonaro would mind having. But yeah, that's that's not good. That's, that's really not good. And He's losing to Luis Inacio Lula de Silva. They call him Lula. Um, he's, I mean, I don't really like him either, but he, he seems to be more popular than Bolsonaro because apparently right now Bolsonaro is trailing by double-digit margins. Now, I think it was easier to call the big lie in the United States because of how close the election was. Like, I, I said back in probably October of 2020, right before the election, I was like, Basically, the only way we could avoid some sort of issues after it would be if Biden just kicks Trump's ass, right? Like just wins by like 20% or something. You know, if there's just no margins that are close enough to debate. Of course, that wasn't the case, right? We didn't even know the results for up to a week afterwards, or I think it was like five days, right? So that, that was my thing was that because it was close, it was easy for Trump to call fraud and say he won, even though the red wave happened first and then the mail-in voting came in. In this case, it could be more difficult for Bolsonaro if he's losing by that much. But again, I, I don't have that much faith anymore. So who knows? Um, I was reading in The Guardian that Bolsonaro basically told the population in, in a speech, I believe it was, that the electronic voting system in, in Brazil, which they've used since 96 without any issues, is uh, compromised. And it was vulnerable to fraud and hacking. And, you know, again, the, the remarks have raised concerns, obviously, around the world. But again, he's facing poor results. But the problem is, is that it looks like he's going to keep trying to discredit the process up until October. And yeah, it just seems like what Trump has done is he's really created a playbook for these wannabe autocrats. And, you know, like an interesting, like, element to this is that Tucker Carlson, I was watching him on his nightly show, oh, it was probably three weeks ago, and he did a whole show in Rio de Janeiro, um, and he interviewed uh, Bolsonaro. It was kind of a fluff piece about how great Bolsonaro is, how he's trying to save the Amazon, and actually it's China's fault that the Amazon's struggling. Very propagandist, as always, uh, which Tucker's good at. And it was just fascinating because he was really buddying up with Bolsonaro, and I'm just talking about how great Brazil is. And I'm like, fuck, man. Like, you clearly can't believe this. Like, I'm like, come on, Tucker. Like, you're, you're not that stupid. You are just clearly lying to everyone. Because I'm like, it's no, it's no mystery that Bolsonaro is a problem, right? And so, again, much like how Tucker went to Hungary, 
you know, did a whole week in Budapest and talked to Viktor Orban. Looks like Bolsonaro's another now buddy of the right, which is problematic, but it makes sense. And this Lula guy who's, you know, kicking Bolsonaro's butt right now in the polls, um, he said it was a shame that Brazil did not have a leader more interested in problems such as jobs, development, and hunger, which Brazil has really struggled with since, you know, the pandemic and before. And he said something that I think was really good. He tweeted, instead, Bolsonaro's telling lies about our democracy. And yeah, sounds a lot like Trump during the pandemic instead of, you know, <laughs> trying to get people jobs or just trying to be a decent human being. He was lying about the election and it led to a coup attempt and the deaths of Capitol Police. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at there. I want to end with a section on Justice Clarence Thomas. So for a long time, I've been kind of fascinated with this guy because he really has unique views that are somewhat contradictory, somewhat idealistic, sometimes well-intentioned, and also just full of grievance, revenge, and misogyny. So he's a really complex figure. And I wanted to kind of walk through his background and I think why it made him have some of these unique views. And I, I do want to clarify right away that don't push back on me and say this is like a defense piece. It's not. It's not me praising him. It's just me trying to understand why this guy is at the forefront of very radical opinions on abortion, gay marriage, contraceptives, and why this guy who grew up with, you know, in a racial America, like a really divided racially America, seems to have these policies that on paper look like they would be bad for other African Americans, right? And so I just want to do this because I, I don't think his actual background is covered enough. And it could help us understand why he's such a brutalist and originalist. For this, I'm going to be using an article from The Atlantic called Deconstructing Clarence Thomas by Michael O'Donnell. I'm also going to use some points from a book from 2019 called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. It's by Corey Robin. I'll also use some stuff from The Economist, Harvard, and Columbia as well. And to begin, I want to start with a line from The Atlantic that was probably the most interesting to me. It reads in quotes, the first thing to know about Clarence Thomas is that everybody at the Supreme Court loves him. Surprisingly, Thomas cultivates a jovial presence in the building's austere marble hallways. Unlike most of his colleagues, he learns everyone's name, from the janitors to each justice's law clerks. Now, again, this article was written, I believe, in 2019 or 2020, so I, I wonder if all the justices still love him after the recent events. <laughs> that could be different, but... Anyways, I thought this was interesting because, let's be honest... Every time I see him, he seems kind of um, cold and angry and stoic. There's kind of a, there's, there seems to be kind of a grievance-based anger or darkness to him. That's kind of what I see in him. Um, also, it doesn't help that his public image is, you know, related to recent statements about Roe and gay marriage or that he's married to Jenny Thomas, who's truly and in, was involved with January 6th and is a QAnon person, or that he, in the 90s, lied to the Senate about the sexual harassment of Anita Hill, um, so he's obviously his public image is not good. The reason I start with this quote is because I think it shows that this is a guy who uh, I, I think people just don't understand. So let's start with the let's start with his upbringing background, which I think provides some interesting insights into his perspective. So you don't just become the most conservative judge in the current court, which is already very conservative by chance. So Thomas actually has a book called My Grandfather's Son. I have not read it, but I've read some excerpts from it. And according to the book and the article in The Economist that I was also referencing earlier, he was raised by his grandfather, who was this very harsh and inflexible person, very cold. 
and his name was Myers Anderson, and apparently he never praised Thomas or showed any affection or told him he was doing a good job. He wanted to harden the kids. He also wanted to make them work hard, and his grandfather did rise to the middle class and had a fuel company, or a fuel supply company, I guess, and he worked hard to get there from all accounts I've seen. And so Thomas wrote in this book a really interesting line about how his grandfather was cold and never congratulated him because he feared the evil consequences of idleness. <laughs> Fun stuff. And something of note will be, something of note, I guess, that will be important in a bit is that, uh, sorry, I thought there was a beeping, is that Thomas also had a sister, but she actually did not live with him and his grandfather. The Atlantic article discusses how his grandfather did not take his sister in, and instead she was raised by an aunt and grew up less well-off than Clarence Thomas did. The article notes that she was deprived of the, middle, of the middle-class upbringing and education that Thomas had, and the new book I was mentioning, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, argues that in some sense this influenced Thomas's misogynistic views of women because apparently he's spoken quite disparagingly of his sister and felt that being raised by a man was why he did well in life and was able to get a good education, live a middle-class childhood. And his sister, who was raised by his aunt, a woman, did not do as well. And so he kind of had this really kind of old-school problematic view of that. And and this book and the Atlantic article kind of argue that this really kind of shaped his perspective. And from all, all the articles I've read, it seems like people who write on Thomas argue that these experiences actually eventually led to his sexual harassment issues later or his court decisions involving re, uh, women's reproductive rights. Moving on, though, for the other perspective of his younger years was that in the 70s, he was quite a radical black activist, which was something I would imagine a lot of people did not know. And he was a one-time follower of Malcolm X. That sounds strange considering that his later views on affirmative action and deregulation are very antithetical to those ideas in a lot of ways. But the big question is why would a guy who was a black activist and someone who spoke out about the ills of racism be an originalist who actually interprets the Constitution as the way the founders understood it in the, in the late 1700s, right? Like, it just seems weird that he would be a, so supportive of a document that his own, his own race were enslaved at the time. And the answer, or at least the theory, is actually fascinating, and it kind of did really open my mind up to this guy. Basically, the thesis from the book Enigma of Clarence Thomas, written by the political scientist Ryan, I talked about, or, yeah, Robin, I talked about earlier, and another article I saw from the Columbia University Review as well is that basically Thompson's immersion to the black nationalism, the Black Panthers, the Malcolm X era in the 1960s and 1970s really shaped his worldview. The Atlantic writes here in quotes, he is staunchly dedicated to a separatist position rooted in individual attainment, achievement, and without assistance from whites and self-determination in the tradition of Brooker T. Washington. So there's a weird, like, almost like individualist, libertarian, individual attainment sphere where he has a view that the black, like black America doesn't need the help or the programs from white America that was the oppressor for generations. And it's a fascinating perspective, which I think can help highlight why he's so against government programs, though I think they're idealistic and flawed, sometimes his rationale. I think it's interesting he has a radical view of how the African-American cause should be faced. 
And he basically just opposes laws and policies designed to help the black community because he views these as white paternalism and does not like the symbolic nature of many of these policies. And yeah, it's really interesting. And this has probably led to his libertarian laissez-faire approach to fighting inequality and why, why he usually votes against interventions. For example, he opposes welfare and affirmative action, just to name a few. I remember skimming through a New Yorker article this morning as well that, that was from a few years ago, and it discussed how he kind of associates the progressive era of the like 60s and 70s um, as a way that actually hurt the African-American community and the African-American family. He thinks that the welfare programs and social aid were problematic in dividing up families. Now, I don't agree with this concept. I think he's really oversimplifying it. He doesn't talk about the war on drugs during the Reagan era and beginning in the Nixon era. He doesn't talk about a lot of the racist policies and the systematic issues between crack and cocaine. I mean, I could go on all day, like, but, but this is what he believes, and it's a very common view on the right. Again, this kind of individualist, pick yourself up by your bootstraps ideology. And he basically just thinks social safety nets hurt the community. And he argues that the best way forward for African-Americans is, is, is with a clean slate rather than clumsy attempts at redress. And he uses the example of how his grandfather prospered in a free market uh, economy. And he argues that a free market without interventions is the best way to prosper. And The Atlantic, I think, sums this up well, uh, sums it up well, sorry, when he says, Thomas actually has a serious vision, however quixotic, for the African-American community. And it deserves to be taken in good faith, even if pro progressives can demolish it on the merits. And I think that's a good way to put it, is he does have a unique perspective on that. I also think an important part of Thomas's perspective is that because he has a very originalist and libertarian view on these issues, he's been attacked a lot by the left. And sometimes it's been racist. Because I've seen a lot of reports in the media, I've seen people say it, they're like, how could a, how could a black Supreme Court judge um, you know, vote this way on these issues or have these views? Like They, they assume that because, of, because he's an African-American, he'll vote f with what the majority of African-Americans would vote for. And I think they, they just assume that. And... I think that's part of why he seems like he has bitter grievances towards a lot of the left. Something interesting as well is that he does really speak up against the issues of slavery and the ramifications of it because in, in the 2003 case, Virginia v. Black, he wrote a solo dissent about the court's decision protecting cross-burning, which was under the First Amendment. And so he was basically the only guy who wrote against the decision to protect the burning of crosses. And he basically said that given its racist connotations and associations with the Ku Klux Klan, he saw cross-burning as being a profane act of racial terrorism. So he, he seems to really believe in the systemic and long-term problems of racism in the U.S., but again, his, his ideas on how to do it are actually quite radical, but in a very different way, I guess. Now, going back to what I mentioned earlier, I think the most egregious part of his views are what he votes towards women and how he acts towards women. Um, the Atlantic writes in quotes here, when it comes to race, Thomas's ideas deserve a substantive hearing. But on the topic of sex, he has earned no such deference, having forfeited the lectern through misconduct and deceit. And one such example of this radical and wrong view that he seems to have was a case called Box v. Planned Parenthood. It involved birth control in Indiana. I believe it was Indiana. And he had a very fringe view linking early birth control advocates to the eugenics movement, which is <laughs> a little bit crazy, to say the least. And he also wrote that women who seek abortions were already mothers. And so these views were very strange. It was like he only viewed, 
he only viewed women as kind of being birthers in this case. And this drew a really strong rebuke from uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time. And this was obviously before the Roe decision that happened recently, but it seems like his writing has been off the wall on this stuff for a while. And he was kind of setting the tone already with his previous decisions and what he felt about reproductive health and contraceptives. Then, of course, there was the Anita Hill decision, right? The Atlantic notes and quotes, he also endured the most searing confirmation battle of any modern American public servant, an ordeal that put race, sex, and power in the national spotlight. By all accounts, including his own, the experience nearly destroyed him. Thomas has since nursed a long list of grievances, vowing to outlive his critics. And I think this is interesting and it adds a lot of perspective into it, because like I said, it seems like that hearing made him almost hate the other side and almost made him become the political actor that he is today. Like that's, It really seems like that case emboldened him, but also angered him to his core. And, and I can't even imagine what it did to Anita Hill talking about that as well. You know, um, he apparently, though, had a record of watching porn, harassing women. Marsha Coyle in the National Law Journal states, in quotes, if it wasn't clear to everyone at the time, it since became clear that Thomas lied to the Judiciary Committee when he stated that he never sexually harassed uh, Anita Hill. And the evidence amassed by investigative journalists over the years is simply too great to claim otherwise. And I think the problem was that this hearing became racialized and about gender and about power. And it, it was in a very different time in American history. And it kind of in some ways reminds me of the OJ, of the OJ trials, right? Um, and I, I don't think the truth was meant to come out in the hearing. And it ruined the life of Anita Hill and made, uh, made Justice Thomas quite bitter and angry. And yeah, so, so that in a way puts us to where we're at now. I'll stop there, but I just wanted to cover this for a while and finally did. So he, his views are not orthodox. And I think that's, it's interesting to know that this is a guy with very intense views on independence and on personal liberty, libertarianism, free markets. Like he's a radical, r radical Republican, but not in the way that like a lot of other Republicans are. And he seems to be also like the true leader of the right wing side of the court. All of his positions at one time seem radical and then become mainstream. And he seems to me to be quite important for that really hard far right movement. Again, I, I want to make it clear is I do not like him in the Supreme Court. And I disagree with almost all of his views. And uh, yeah, I, like his experience is just fascinating to me. And I, I think he's, he's a figure that's kind of been on a long road towards the views he has now. And the problem is he seems to be getting his way with a lot of these radical views now. So, yeah, we have to hope that this is the last of his radical views, but I don't know. We'll have to see. Anyways, let me know what you think of this episode. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, all that jazz. I'll be back on Monday, and have a great weekend. Try to stay cool, drink lots of water, and uh, also just try to have some fun. Take care.